church family as I was working my way through high school and through college, I got a job at Outback Steakhouse. And for several years, I worked there as a busboy, as a dishwasher, and as a short order cook. And I loved that job because I got a discount on steak. So as a hungry college student, I would in enjoy, I would savor those moments where the steak had the seasoning that was just right, and the juices would just flow throughout my mouth, and it would take a long time to chew. It just took a while to just get through all of that goodness. Well, that is what's happening in 1 Peter chapter 1. It is rich, it is meaty, it is good, but it takes a long time to get through. We're on week three of our sermon series, Imperishable, in which we as a church family are looking at the, the book of 1 Peter, and we haven't gotten through chapter 1, verse 1 yet, okay? It takes time for us to get through this goodness, but as we look through the scriptures, there is so much to unpack, and so this morning, it's going to feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant, okay? As we look at verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1, there is so much to unpack, it's almost going to become overwhelming together. But as we study this text together, I think there is so much that you and I can take away from this text that applies to our life, but it also helps us to live lives in seeing what God has done for us. What's interesting here, we saw back in week one, that the author of this letter is Simon Peter. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a man who was set apart by Jesus to advance God's mission through the early church. Last time we gathered around this text, two weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 1, we saw where Peter identifies the audience as elect exiles. These are first century believers who were chosen, and but they are living in a land that was not their home. Indeed, they were refugees, sojourners, aliens in a foreign land. And that's true for you and I today. We have been chosen. We have been elected by Christ. He has called us and saved us. And yet we're living in a, home, in a place that is not our home. Your permanent residence is not the United States. Your permanent residence, your citizenship is in heaven. It is with Christ. And as we look through the scriptures here, we're going to see here in verse 2 some big words. Okay? And I want to encourage you that when you see big words, don't be afraid of them. You're going to see words in verse 2 like foreknowledge, words like sanctification. Big words are nothing to worry about, okay? Mayonnaise is a big word, okay? You don't got to be afraid of a big word in the scriptures. When you see the word, seek to understand it. Or you're going to see some big phrases here. Like you're going to see sprinkling with the blood, okay? Don't be afraid of big phrases when you're in the scriptures. Second string quarterback. That's a big phrase, okay? You don't have to be afraid of it. When you come across something in Scripture that's unfamiliar, it's a big word or a big phrase, you don't run from it, you run to it. And you seek to discover what the Lord may be seeking to teach you through that text. So as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We see here in the text the triune God who has done everything necessary to bring you into a personal relationship with himself. The scriptures are abundantly clear that there indeed is one true God. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 where the Shema declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one true God. However, he reveals himself in three personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. What we see here in the text is the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together in perfect unity, harmony, and perfection. We see, verse 2, that salvation was accomplished through a group project. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together to provide this permanent, eternal, personal relationship with himself. And so this morning, as we look at the text, I want you to see, look what God has done to bring you into a personal relationship with himself. I want you to see, number one, that the Father foreknew you. Look at verse 2. Scripture says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter here, he connects election in verse 1 to the Father's foreknowledge in verse 2. Last time we studied the text, we discovered that God chose you before you chose him. Now to build on that truth this morning, our election, verse 1, is in accordance with, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father. From before the foundations of the earth were ever put in place, God foreknew those who would believe the gospel. You see, the word Peter uses here for foreknowledge, it does not mean prediction. Okay, this is not a James Spann forecast. This is not a lucky guess. You see, foreknowledge it certainly includes the truth that God knows what's going to happen before it happens. And yet, that word means so much more than that. Foreknowledge, don't miss this, is God's predetermined will to save sinners from before the creation of the world. Go get some coffee and think about that for a while. It's amazing what we see here in the text that God predetermines those who will be in Christ. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10 says, I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In Acts chapter 2, the same Simon Peter who's writing this letter stands up and he preaches to a sea of people. And he says in Acts chapter 2, men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him, you killed him. You see, God was sovereign over the sinful actions of the Jews who crucified Jesus. So much so that God planned the cross of Christ long before he was a baby laid in a manger in Bethlehem. 
If you are a follower of Jesus today, it's because long before the foundations of the earth were ever put in place, God the Father foreknew you. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Persecution was intensifying for these first century believers. There was a growing temptation to abandon the faith, to forsake Christ, to say, you know what, I'm going to pack it up. I can bypass suffering. I can bypass all of these people who are trying to take me down if I can just cut ties with the church. And my life is going to get a lot easier. I will not have to suffer as much. And so Peter here, he's saying, no, 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 don't go back. Remain faithful to Jesus. And he's not giving them Christian cliches. He's not giving them hashtag blessed t-shirts. He's giving them election. He says, this is rock beneath your feet. As persecution is coming, as suffering is coming, he is undergirding their faith with the foreknowledge of God the Father, saying, listen, you need to realize that you have been chosen by God so that when the time comes, when the persecution attacks, when the Roman emperor seeks to take you down, you're standing firm on the rock of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells the parable in Matthew chapter 7 of two different types of houses. One house that is built upon sand, one house that is built upon rock. The rains came, the winds blew, the floods rose, but the house on the rock stood firm. Peter is saying, listen, build your house upon the rock of Jesus This is rock beneath your feet. Rest in the foreknowledge of God that long before you were ever born, God knew you would be born again. And here we see him calling them to to gaze at what God has done. The Father foreknew them. Maybe you're here and you have people who are mocking your faith. You don't believe those fairy tales, do you? Maybe you have coworkers or teammates, classmates who belittle you, who say, you don't believe all of that stuff, do you? Maybe you're struggling with doubt, saying, man, do I really believe this stuff? Is this really what I'm giving my life to? Maybe you're just in the middle of a storm and it just seems like you just can't seem to get your feet on solid ground. Hear me today. The foreknowledge of God is bedrock for your faith to remember that long before you were ever born, God knew he would bring you to himself, which means you're not an accident. You're not where you are by chance. God intentionally and strategically has you where you are so that you might bank your life upon him. But secondly, I want you to see here in the text that the Spirit set you apart. Verse 2, it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, the word sanctification, it means to be set apart. It means to be holy. It means consecrated. Followers of Jesus are quite literally set apart from sin, and we are set apart for God. In Christ, we are sanctified. We are holy before the Lord. Well, Kenneth, how can I be sanctified? 
Well, the answer is by trusting in the work of Jesus at the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. So when you hear the gospel, when you hear what Jesus has done for you, and you, you trust in him, you bank your eternity upon Jesus. It's at that moment that your eyes are opened. You're able to understand the gospel. And he, verse 2, he applies the gospel to you. You are sanctified. Now, the scriptures give us three ways that you are holy. Let me give these to you. The first is this. The first way you are holy is that, number one, you are positionally holy. Now, this is what Peter's referencing here in verse 2. At the moment you're born again, the second you believe the gospel, God declares you are righteous. It's a one-time completed act when the Holy Spirit makes you holy. The moment you believe, God bestows upon you. He imputes his holiness upon you. You are sanctified. You're holy and blameless in his sight. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his mercy and grace. But this wasn't always the case for us. In fact, before you and I knew Christ, the situation looked really bad. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who submit to or perform homosexual acts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. That's good news. It's past tense. It's not who you are anymore. You're in Christ. You're hidden in Jesus. That's not what defines you anymore. That used to be your old life, but now you're in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. Well, how did this happen? He goes on to say in that verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You see, before you put your faith in Jesus, all that you knew was sin. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were separated from God. We were by nature objects of wrath, but God gets involved. He says, I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm going to change your heart, make you a new creation. Old things are going to pass away, and such were some of you. You're not that anymore. Now you belong to Jesus. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. This is a permanent one-time action that carries forward into the future. You see, the moment that you believed, there was a holy exchange that took place. You see, the moment you believed upon Jesus' death on the cross for you, your sin is placed upon him. And his holiness is placed upon you. There is this holy exchange that takes place the moment you trust in Christ. All of your sin, all of your shame, everything in your past that you're embarrassed of is placed upon Jesus at the cross. And all of his holiness and righteousness is now placed upon you through faith in him. It's a holy exchange that takes place, which means everything in your life, in your past, you're just like, you know what, that isn't from the Lord. God says, I paid for it through the death of my son. 
And now, because of your trust, your faith in him, I'm now taking his holiness and his righteousness and I'm placing it upon you. It is now permanently sealed to your account. For some of you, this happened at VBS. Someone shared the gospel, it made sense, and you believed. For some of you, it was at your parents' kitchen table. They sat down with you and they shared the gospel with you and you trusted in Christ. For some of you, it may have been a summer camp or on a Sunday morning when the preacher shared the gospel and gave an invitation and you gave your life to Jesus. For me, I was 18 years old. I was in my bedroom by myself, 1 a.m. in the morning, and I opened up my Bible. I read 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I knew that I didn't. And so right there, no preacher, no church, just me and the Lord, I gave my life to Christ. And at that very moment, I was made holy. Not because of anything I've done. It's not because of anything that you have done. It's all grace. You don't deserve it. He just freely, graciously gives it to you. Maybe you're here this morning, and today is the day of salvation. Today, you can leave this church campus by trusting in Jesus. You can be positionally holy before God. A permanent stamp. You are not promised tomorrow. Do not delay surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Today, repent. Turn away from your sins. Trust in Jesus, and he will receive you. You will be permanently, positionally holy before him. But the second way that you are holy is that you are progressively holy. After you've put your faith in Christ, God begins to take you through a process of making you more and more like Jesus. He is sanctifying you. He is setting you apart. Now, in this process, you're going to struggle. Paul calls it in Romans 7, um, he, he says it like this, I don't do the things that I should. And I do the things that I shouldn't. There's this holy struggle within you and within me who belong to Jesus in which we just, we grow with Jesus and there's times where it's just our growth isn't there. So the growth that you experience in your sanctification, in this progression, it's not a straight line upward trajectory. Okay, it's more like the Dow Jones. There's ups and there's downs. There's peaks and there's valleys. But the overall trajectory, the growth in your Christian life should be trending upward. The danger is, if you are looking at your life, if you are not becoming more holy, if you're not becoming more like Jesus, there is a danger. It means that you're probably not in Christ. Don't miss this truth. True disciples of Jesus grow to become more like Jesus. There's no two ways about it. If you're not growing in holiness, if you're not becoming more like Jesus, then you're probably not in Christ. You can see it through someone's character. They're changing. They're more trustworthy and truthful. Actions are changing. They're more loving and patient. Their speech is changing. They're more honest and kind. The attitude is changing. You're more humble and other-centered. Before I came to know Jesus, I had a filthy mouth. And now when I go back and I spend time with those people before I knew Jesus, they're like, what happened? The answer is Jesus. 
He begins to change your character. He changes your thinking. Your worldview changes. You no longer view yourself or the world around you the same. It's amazing how the gospel begins to affect every part of your life. But the danger that takes place is that there are those who think, you know what? Um, I claim to follow Jesus, but my life doesn't change. That's a dangerous place to be. Can I say to you, living in the South is dangerous because you can identify with cultural Christianity and not identify with Jesus. And the danger you face is Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, will, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, not a few, not a couple, not a handful, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, did I not attend church periodically? Lord, did I not tip you with my money occasionally? Lord, did I not get in the baptismal waters? Did I not pray a prayer? Insufficient. Depart from me. You see, the mark that you belong to Jesus is that you're becoming like Jesus. And so as you examine your life, if you're not growing in holiness, there should be red flags going off in your mind and in your heart saying, warning, you may not be in Christ. A mark that you belong to Jesus is you're being changed by Jesus. You have a passion for holiness. You want to become more like Christ. You declare with 18th century Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane who said this, I want to be as holy as a saved sinner can be. Absolutely. Now I want to be as holy as possible. I want my life to look more and more like Jesus I want to grow in tenderness and in kindness. I want to have access to every part of my life so the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are pleasing in his sight so that all of our lives reflect the glory of Christ. When I was in college, I listened to a bunch of music that was deplorable. Um, I liked it. It sounded good, but some of the words in it and the content were just terrible. And so... One day, I'm, I'm driving down the road with my buddy, who's a believer, and I put the CD in. We're listening to it. He hits eject, and he throws the CD out the window. Bro, what are you doing? I'll never forget this. He said, Kenneth, you're a Christian now. We don't listen to that anymore. Now, for me, that moment was pivotal. That was a growth moment. I, that it's, at that moment, I realized, man, Jesus wants all of me. Like he, he wants the shows that I watch on TV, the movies I watch, the clothes I wear, the music I, I absorb, the people I hang out with. He wants all of me. You see, when you give these things up, it's not a sacrifice. It's not a sense in which you're like, oh, I hate giving up this awesome stuff. No, no, no. The Lord says, no, 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 give that to me. I'm going to give you something far better because God always replaces what he takes away when it comes to this. I'm going to take away this foolishness. I'm going to give you something far better. You know what it is? Me. The Lord says, I'm going to give you myself. 
and I'm going to give you joy that is far greater than any foolishness that you're going to see on YouTube. It's far greater than anything you're going to see in the world around you. I'm greater. I'm sweeter. And that's what this word means. To be progressively holy means we're becoming more and more like Jesus. My prayer for us as a church is that we will grow in holiness. We'll become more like Jesus. We'll be marked by that. Not that we're a bunch of religious prudes who think we've got it all together. We're not cocky or arrogant. That has no room in the gospel. That has no room in the local church. But we are humbled by the gospel and we pursue Christ's likeness with joy and humility and with love. So we're progressively holy. Thirdly, I want you to see that you will be perfectly holy. Boy, this is good news. There's coming a day when you and I will permanently, forever and ever be perfectly holy. And this is a day I long for. You know, 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's coming a day in which Jesus will come and we will be like him. We will be holy as he is holy. We will no longer struggle and fight against sin. You'll no longer be tempted with pornography. You'll no longer be tempted to fight the anxiety and the worry and the fear. You're no longer going to fight those words coming out of your mouth that you should have never said. There's going to come a day in which you and I, we will be perfectly holy. We're going to be with the Lord. And that's a day I long for. A day in which I can put away this tent. I can put away this body, this sinful flesh. It can be done away with. My body will be made new. My spirit will be made new. We will be with Christ together. And it's a promise. It is a day that is coming for us. Now this idea of being perfectly holy, this is foreign to us. Like in, in many ways, this is, kind of, this is incomprehensible for us to imagine what it's going to be like. Well, why is that? It's because we're, we're like fish who've grown so accustomed to living in the water, we cannot imagine life without swimming in a world full of sin. We just can't imagine it. Because every day, your flesh is trying to take you down. Every day, the world lies to you. Satan himself wants to steal your joy, steal your life, and steal your faith. Every day. And you and I are in this battle. We're in the fight. And if you don't recognize it, you're losing. Every day, you and I have got to get up and say, I am going to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow Jesus. We have to diligently watch our souls and be faithful and committed to Jesus because he promises there's coming a day in which this fight is over. It's done. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will remain forever and ever. This worldly system that is antithetical to God and his gospel will be done away with. Our flesh will be done away with. We'll have new bodies. We'll be with Christ. And it is promised and it's coming and you will be perfectly holy. It's coming. So fix your eyes upon Jesus and don't look away. Let's keep running after him. Third and finally here in verse two, I want you to see that the son bled for you. The Lord Jesus, verse two, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You see, followers of Jesus obey Jesus. We obey the gospel. And so what is Peter referencing when he writes for sprinkling with his blood? What's he talking about? He's pointing us backwards to Exodus 24 where Moses had returned from Mount Sinai and he gathers God's people together and says, let me tell you what the Lord revealed to me. Here is his law. And the people are like, yes, we agree. We're with you. We're going to obey. So Moses then takes, uh, gets away from the people and he writes down the law that God revealed to him at Mount Sinai. It's sitting in your lap right now. It's the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. And after Moses writes that down, he then comes before the people and he sacrifices an animal. He then takes some of that blood and he begins to sprinkle the blood on the people. And so as Moses is sprinkling this sacrifice, he's sprinkling this blood on the people. He says this in Exodus 24 verse 8. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. What's going on? You see, God made a promise to his people. I know you're not going to keep my law. You are not going to fulfill what you said you're going to fulfill. But I want you to know I'm going to keep my covenant. I'm the God who makes his promise and I keep my promises. You see, through the shedding of blood, he would forgive his people of their sins and he would cleanse them of all unrighteousness. Fast forward to the night Jesus was betrayed. He meets in an upper room, eats a Passover meal with his disciples. And what does he say? He quotes Exodus 24, verse 8. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's through his death on the cross, Jesus shed his blood to forgive the sins of his people. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus seals the new covenant with his blood. Through his shedding of blood on the cross, he now makes it possible for you and I to be forgiven of our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. Because of what God did for us in the gospel, verse 2, grace and peace can now be multiplied to you. Grace that comes through the gospel, peace with God, peace with man, peace within, all of that is multiplied to us because we look and see what God has done for us. You see, William Cowper was a man who struggled with depression. He had a hard time most days getting out of bed. And so to calm himself and to encourage his heart, he would write poetry. And in 1771, he wrote these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The good news of the gospel is because Jesus shed his blood at the cross, you and I can have a right relationship with God. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit work together so that you and I can be with him forever. Look 
what God has done.